I'm Emma G. Rose. I'm Michelle Shearer. We're indie authors. And this is Indie Book Talk. Hello and welcome back to Indie Book Talk. Today we have Karen Heenan, author of Coming Apart, which is the first in a new series. So we're definitely going to talk about that. But first, Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I understand you are currently doing indie publishing, but you started out in many other aspects of that. So how did you start? What what led you to this place? Ah, uh, yeah, I have basically tried most of the routes to publication. I've been writing since I was a kid. And when I first started thinking about publishing, the internet wasn't really even that much of a thing yet. So it would have been, you know, paper queries. And I never really worked up the nerve for that. When I did start querying, um, which was back in 2015, I got 86 rejections that I counted. And I did finally get an agent, which I did the dance of joy around my house. That's the validation (laughs) we all think we want in the beginning is, you know, somebody to tell us that it's good enough. And I had that agent for a year. And looking back now, I I probably could have handled that better, but I didn't really know how much I was supposed to ask and follow up with her. And I didn't want to be the annoying writer. So I didn't hear from her as often as I would like. And by the time that we broke up a year later, when she sent me the email saying, you know, I haven't been able to place your book. I think it's time we parted ways. Then she sent me a list of all the places that had provided rejections, but I hadn't been able to get that up until that point. Oh, that's frustrating. It was. And she also hadn't asked if I was working on something else, which it seems to me that if book one didn't work, but you had some belief in the writer, you would say, well, let's try another one. Right. But I decided if she wasn't willing to do that, then I was probably better off. But also my little writer feelings got hurt and I kind of sat back for about a year and licked my wounds and Mm -hmm. didn't even really write that much because I didn't know how I wanted to handle what was coming next. I really, I knew at that point that self-publishing was a thing, but I didn't know how legitimate it was. It's like, I didn't know that many other writers at that point and I didn't realize just how many people were doing it and doing it well. And I started, I started listening to far too many podcasts. You know, when I want to do something, I have to learn all the things. <laughs> and I started with Joanna Penn and followed everybody she told me to read and follow and learned a lot. And I had originally joined Twitter basically just for the reasons we all started, just for like quick news and seeing who's doing something embarrassing. <laughs> But I started connecting with writers on there. And one day I saw something about a pitch contest and I had no idea what that was. And I looked it up. And at that point, I was still writing and rewriting my query a million times because I'd rather write a book than a query. You know, I'd rather write 100,000 words than try to boil my entire book into three paragraphs. It's impossible. I don't know how people do it. I still don't know how people do it. Actually, these days I write my I write my blurb before I write the book. That's like magic to me. At least if I change it, I at least have a starting point. But 
I, I looked up what this pitch contest was and what there's no way I can pitch a, a large historical novel in 140 characters, which is what it was then. Mm-hmm. And, and then I realized that the pitch contest happened again in three months. So I'm like, oh, I'll spend three months working on this and then I'll come back. And I shut the computer off, went upstairs to do things. And it just kept bugging me. And I came back downstairs, turned the computer on, typed three quick pitches, scheduled them, closed my eyes, walked away, and didn't look at the computer again until like 8 o'clock that night. And I had gotten two agent likes and one like from a small press. Nice. So I want to stop you just for a second. For Mm -hmm. those who haven't been involved in these pitch contests, normally the way that works is if an agent likes you, then that means they want you to query them and or investigate other opportunities to work with you. So when you're in these pitch contests, the goal as other participants is to reshare or comment, but never like someone's pitch because that's for agents. So this is very exciting. Like that is huge results. That's the equivalent of having three agents or publishers invite you to a private conversation. And of course, there were also likes from other writers who hadn't gotten that message, but neither yeah. <laughs> neither had I in the beginning. So I followed up with the two agents immediately because that still seemed like my preferred path. And mm-hmm. one of them still hasn't gotten back to me. And that was <laughs> that was December of 2018. So I'm going to assume that's a no. We can write them <laughs> off. Yeah. The second one got back to me and, you know, I'd sent her whatever her sample request was. I think it was only like 10 pages and she asked for more. So that was exciting. And I followed up with the small press and they wanted, I think, three chapters. So I Mm -hmm. sent them that. The agent got back to me about a week later asking for a full and so did the publisher. So I was. Nice responses. Yeah. Well, I get. I I think both of them were relatively new, so they were really looking to fill out what they were doing. The agent actually, at this point, is no longer in the business. Mm. I remember her posting that it just did not agenting did not live up to her expectations, and she was going to go back to writing. But she she responded to the fall and said she really liked it. She liked the writing. But because of the time period, it's a Tudor historical. She thought it would go over better if I rewrote it more in the style of Philippa Gregory with more descriptions of clothes and more descriptions of castles and all of the stuff that is in the more popular books. And nothing against Philippa Gregory. I've read some of her books. She tells a good story. Her history is a little iffy for me sometimes, but, you know, it was neither here nor there. It's just the our voices are very different. And I didn't want to finally publish a book by making myself sound like someone else. So I said no to that and went on talking to the publisher. And they, they after reading the full, offered me a contract. And I said, well, what are your thoughts on edits because of what had happened with the agent request. And they said, basically, it's fine, just standard copy edits. And we're going to want you to provide backup for like some of the historical things or anything you might have quoted in it. And I'm like, those are all reasonable. So that was that was how I ended up getting published. My first two books went out through that that small press. The first one, Songbird, came out in 
November of 2019. The second book came out in February of 2020. What a wonderful time to try to launch a book as the world shuts down like a month later and all of the live things that I had arranged just went poof. But people needed books to read. They did. And, (laughs) you know, that was when I really, really learned that small press, large press, indie published, we're all basically on our own as far as marketing is concerned. So figuring that out has been probably the hardest part. And, you know, I I did two books with the small press and it was, it was not a bad experience, but because I am the podcast and learning all about every process junkie. <laughs> I tended to come up with different ideas than they had. They were listening and listening to different things and reading different books than I had. Mm-hmm. And their suggestion was, well, anything that you think is a good idea, maybe, you know, you should try it. But I didn't really want to invest that kind of, I don't know whether you can hear that warbling. That's my cat. I didn't want to invest that Kind oh, she of. sounds like a child. I love her. <laughs> She's about this big and her mouth is most of her. Oh. Um, I didn't want to invest that kind of money and time into something when the books weren't entirely mine. If I was going to invest a decent chunk of money into marketing, I wanted to see the results. And I thought about continuing on and we'd actually, they'd read the first draft of the third book in the series. <laughs> Those of you who are watching rather than listening, um, I just interrupted everything by giggling uh, at the cat because the cat's hilarious. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I They had read my first draft and they were interested in continuing on with the series. And I thought about it and I had also heard another podcast recently. It was a uh, Sasha Black Rebel Author podcast, and she had someone on who had just written a a book called Take Back. I think it's called Take Back Your Books about rights reversion. (laughs) And it sort of confirmed what I was thinking that while this was the right path for some people, it just was beginning to not feel like the right path for me. Mm -hmm. And I spent a few days working up an email that I sent to them and just said, you know, it's not you. It is me. (laughs) We've all used that line, but in that case, it was true. (laughs) And, you know, explained that I had a lot of things that I wanted to try and I didn't think we were going in the same direction. And they published a fair amount of fantasy work in addition to a few pieces of historical. And I said, I really don't think that we're fitting together that well. I think, you know, since I am strictly sticking to historical and you seem to be heading more in that direction, I don't know, you know, I can't really cross promote with the other authors from my publisher. It wouldn't, Mm. we don't have the same readership. And they took a couple days to think about it and got back to me and they agreed that it was me and not them. And they said, we'll get everything pulled down and you can have everything back. I I was expecting it to be a lot more complicated, honestly. But then I had to do all of the rapid learning to figure out how to, once these books came down everywhere, how to reformat everything and get them all back up. Mm. So how much effort did that take? Like to do it the first time, was it, was it overwhelming? Is there some good 
information out there? There's a ton of good information out there. And I probably, I have, I don't know whether this would be anything that would be useful to your followers, but I'd be happy to like provide the the checklist that I made up for myself of all the steps and all the things that I do each time I release a book now, you know, who to follow oh, up be, with, have I, I would done love this, it. have I done that? There are yeah. probably gaps, but I'd be happy to send it to you. But yeah, we'd love that. And if nothing else, I would love that. <laughs> we'll, we'll link it in the, in the description and okay. we'll share it out on Twitter. Okay. Mm-hmm. One of the things that actually was also helpful in the re-releasing of the books is part of part of where I learned that I had a bit more of a control issue than I'd thought was Songbird. Book one had originally been published with a different cover. And I hadn't been thrilled with the cover at the time, but I'd pretty much worked my way through every revision I was going to get. And then I got a few comments from readers who were not friends who basically said, if I hadn't heard somebody else talk about it, I would have never picked that up. And I reached out to a friend whose covers I really liked, asked her about her cover designer and spoke to him, told him what I, what I liked and what I was looking for, you know, not female figure facing away, even though that is probably the most, the most popular thing in historical fiction. But he and I came up with something and I kind of presented my publisher with the, I, I hate my cover and I've purchased a new one and I would like you to swap it out. (laughs) And they thought I was a little nuts, but they did it. <laughs> and so when book two came around, I already had the cover ready to go when I submitted it to them. <laughs> so at least when I got the books back, I had full rights to those covers. Awesome. That's good. I could just reload them. And there was no question on Amazon's part that they were the same books being reissued in a second edition. And probably within a week, they had linked all of my old reviews back up to it. Because I hated the idea of losing those, but so those all caught up. And so that two books with the publisher, and then I re-released them. And then in February of this year, I released the third book in that series, which was self-published start to finish then. That was, that one had only ever really been in my hands. And then I started this new, well, I I released an omnibus edition uh, ebook only because I write fat historical books and I didn't want to think about what a paperback would have looked like over, you know, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to hurt my readers. <laughs> <laughs> you need one of those big, it's an excuse to get one of those big stands, a giant yes. book stand Ooh. that they have at the library. I'm just yeah. saying. I would like one of those. <laughs> yeah. So that I I did the omnibus version of that, which was ebook, and then this October I started uh, a new series, which I'm up to my eyebrows in book two of right now. (laughs) So you've done, you really have done every part of the process. I hope that listeners have learned something about the different types of publishing because basically Karen has done all of them at this point. I certainly have tried. The only thing I haven't really done is what they're calling hybrid these days, sort of the small presses where you where you pay and they do. I mean, some of them are vanity presses, but some of them are legitimate and you get a lot for your money. Mm-hmm. But I, I liked the small press setup that I was with because it still acted like what I thought of as traditional. You know, mm-hmm. I gave them the book, they put in the work. If it sold, we both made money. I didn't like the idea of paying up front, even 
if it was a legitimate publisher. Mm-hmm. So, so that brings us to the burning question, which is now that you've gone indie, do you feel like your sales have gotten better, or worse, or stayed the same? They've gotten better. Plus, you know, obviously I have more royalties now because right. it's 70% if you publish on Amazon, which is a lovely thing. Some of that is just having three books out. I think readers are more likely to take a chance when there's a bit right. of a backlist. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also done Brian Cohen's course on Amazon advertising. Mm-hmm. And I have Amazon ads work when they work. And when they don't, I turn them off for a while when it seems like I'm losing too much money. But at least it gets the book in front of people. It might not otherwise. And in October, when Coming Apart came out, it's it's available wide in paper and hardback, but it's only available in ebook on Amazon because I wanted to try Kindle Unlimited, which I hadn't tried before. And I don't like the idea of putting all my eggs in one basket, but I like I like what Kindle Unlimited has been doing to to my bank account. <laughs> you know, once upon a time, I wanted the validation of having an agent and having a publishing contract, but as I've gone on, the validation is royalties. It's readers. Yes, exactly. It's you know, readers. That, that's, that, that's what you're going for, no matter who publishes you, is validation from readers. So at least that's why I'm going directly. Mm-hmm. And if something doesn't work, it's on me to figure it out. And I like that challenge. Are you doing audio as well? I've done audio for the first two books. The first one had been through the publisher, but they had some audio artists that they worked with. And because it's a historical set in England, their two female voices tried to do British accents. And (laughs) it's not that they were bad, but because it's, you know, there are so many characters in a book. I'm like, there is no way she's got a British accent for every level of society here. I'd rather not even try that. But I do have a lot of friends in theater. I used to do a lot of uh, costuming and I still have a lot of friends in theater. So I asked a friend of mine if she would be willing to do Songbird because it's a female narrator and I still owe her a Shakespeare level costume whenever she gets into a play (laughs) that deserves it. But so we just bartered that in advance. She would send me a chapter every couple of days and I learned how to do audio editing, which I didn't know I knew how to do. But apparently, if you try hard enough, you can figure any of this out. And it's a free program called Audacity, which is basically Mm -hmm. like word for sound. I mean, you can cut and paste and do all the same kind of things. That's how we edit our podcast, too. Yeah, it's a it's pretty intuitive for something I don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) And the, the publisher did the final mastering on that one. But by the time I got started on the audio for the second book, I was in the process of breaking away from them. So Jared, the actor who did the files for the second book, I just, I taught myself the final work on that one and got that book out probably four or five months ago. So I need to do book three in that series, Lady in Waiting, but I don't know if I'm going to try to do it or if I'm going to find another friend who's willing to barter or... You know, I I like the barter system. Oh, so do I. I am trying. I am trying. I I spent thirty years in a cubicle, and right now my life is basically trying to live without ever seeing one of those ever again. 
<laughs> I worked for lawyers for 30 years and Oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was totally accidental, but I got really comfortable with the way they paid my bills. Yeah. Fair. I I know we're running short on time, but you'd mentioned something earlier that I just had to ask. So you you mentioned that they asked you to verify your historical facts. Is that common in fiction? I don't think it's necessarily common. I think sometimes if you hit them with something really obscure, like the the whole premise of the first book was this little throwaway fact I read in a biography of Henry VIII that he was such a music lover, he actually purchased children to sing in the royal choir. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I'm not even going to touch that. Like, okay, yeah, I, fine. I, I, I kept going. On. <laughs> I kept going, but that kind of stuck with me. And that's where the story came from. But they were like, really? And I sent them a link to it. And then for things like the songs that I quoted, they're like, are they all period appropriate? I mean, there's no rights that need to be checked on these. And okay, the things, rights, I guess, yeah. Things like that. And they would, they had one person who was very detailed on certain things. She would question, the, like, the more on book two, she questioned the, well, how did, how long did it take to get from here to there and there to here? And I learned I either have to be very specific or just kind of gloss over travel because none of us know how long horses and boats took in those days. And it was fiction. So. Yeah. yeah, but historical fiction readers can get very oh, yes. that's valid exacting yeah. because they want to be fully immersed in that story and they don't want to be distracted by the fact that like somebody's got buttons on a dress that they didn't invent buttons yet. Like, they're yeah. very mm -hmm. upset about these things. No, oh, that's true. I read a Tudor historical lately that had a field of tulips waving in front of Hampton Court and my head spun around like the exorcist. <laughs> Uh, it's like, no, 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 no. We know that's not right. And also keep your medieval potatoes. <laughs> okay. We should okay. name this episode, keep your medieval potatoes. <laughs> I'll make it a subtitle. Um, so before we, as we so often do, go completely off the rails here, uh, let me ask you where, if people want to keep track of all these many routes of publishing and all the books you have coming out and all the things that you're doing, because like I'm kind of overwhelmed at this point, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, all the usual social media outlets, but I would say start with my website, which is karenheenan.com. I've got a blog on there. You can also sign up for my newsletter, which only happens once a month and I will say might be interesting for anybody who is thinking about reading my newest book because anybody who signs up gets a novella that is a prequel to Coming Apart. Nice. Ooh. I'm on Facebook as Karen Heenan Writer, Karen Heenan on Twitter, and I'm on Instagram, but that is some books, some sewing, and some of my noisy cat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can we see the cat? <laughs> I'll send her picture along with that little spreadsheet and you can add it. Fabulous. <laughs> I think okay. she's eating now and we'll, we're going to leave her okay. be quiet. Yeah, we don't want to well, disturb that. Thank you for being with us today. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. This was fun. 